In this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the zakhut of speaking to Rabbi David Foreman, the founder and CEO at Aleph Peter Academy. He has served as a junk professor at Johns Hopkins University and as a lead writer and editor for Art School's Talmud Translation Project. He is the author of The Beast That Crouches at the Door, The Queen You Thought You Knew, and The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. Rabbi Foreman seeks to open layers of meaning of biblical text to help the reader develop a relationship with a text that makes us who we are. Rabbi Foreman, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. So it's Desert Island Torah, thinking about three pieces of Torah that speak to us and we would possibly take with us to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to finding out three pieces of Torah with you today. Um, so you can jump right in. Be ready for your first piece. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, so uh, I guess when I think of Torah, you know, Torah is a big word and has a lot of different connotations. And sometimes the way we use that word is to think about essays or ideas that various people have given by way of commentary or their own take on things in the Jewish religion. Uh, the way I kind of use the word Torah is in a more literal sense to think of the Torah actually itself. Um, and uh, for me, what's exciting about the Torah, which is to say the actual five books of Moses and the Tanakh, is to the extent to which it serves as its own kind of commentary. And that if you begin to listen carefully to it, you can detect layers of richness that are not just beautiful, but also compelling and relevant to people's lives. So for me, when you say um, three pieces of Torah, I kind of think of, you know, if I um, had a Tanakh and I had to just take it apart and only take uh, three little pieces from it, you know, what would I take with me? or what parts of it are uh, are most meaningful. That's very tough to say because the whole document is interconnected. Um, so what I'd really love is the whole thing. Uh, but I'll share with you three pieces that have particular meaning to me. Um, some of them will come maybe as no surprise to your listeners, and some of them, uh, uh, one or two of them are surprising. Uh, the first of the ones that I find fascinating uh, would be the Ten Commandments. Um, the Ten Commandments is, you know, probably the most famous piece of Torah in the five books of Moses, um, most well-known outside of Judaism. But it's also a piece that not a lot of folks um, relate to in a deeply personal uh, way. Um, you know, if I asked you, how many moral dilemmas have you faced over the past 30 days for which you've looked at the Ten Commandments for guidance, you'd probably would say not that many if you haven't been considering murder lately, right? So how is number six really speaking to you? So you could say, well, it's a document that is the foundation of Western civilization, but it's not really meant to speak to me personally. That's possible. But it's also possible that it is meant to speak to me personally. And I think the latter is the case. For me, the power of the Ten Commandments comes when you begin to see how the Ten Commandments operate as a kind of commentary upon themselves. I think there are layers in the Ten Commandments, and the layers can be discerned by an analysis of the structure of the document. Um, the structure, uh, and I'll just give you a basic idea of what I'm talking about. 
If you ask most people, what's the most obvious structural feature of the Ten Commandments, they'd say, well, you know, there's two tablets. Uh, it didn't have to be two tablets. It could have just been one tablet. Um, how come these laws are broken into two tablets? I see that there's a tablet here and a tablet there. That's the most obvious layer of structure when you look at the document, and that's true. But then if I asked you, okay, so what distinguishes the first tablet from the second tablet, that's where things start to get a little bit more complicated. A lot of people have learned in school that the distinction between the two sides of the tablets are what we call the distinction between laws that govern relationships between people and God and laws that govern relationships between people and other people. But the problem is, is that if you actually go through the Ten Commandments, um, it's hard to make that work because even though you know, if you go look at the first tablet, I am the Lord your God, is relationship, you know, presumably between me and God. Uh, don't take any other gods before me. Likewise, relationship between me and God. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the commandment to um, uh, not to take God's name in vain. Likewise, relationship between me and God, the Sabbath also. That's four out of five. But the fifth one doesn't seem to fit. And the fifth one is honor your parents, and parents are people. So how come parents are on the first side, they should be on the second side? Um, and when you think about that, um, you really have to ask yourself, okay, so wh what is that commandment doing on the first side of the Ten Commandments? If we just switch that over the second side, we'd have a very nice lineup, relationships between man and God on the one side, between people and people on the other side. Why is it that honor your parents is on the first side? I think it, that this is one of these cases where you can sort of take a Sesame Street little game, which one of these things is not like the other, take the Ten Commandments and then say, well, it, it doesn't seem to fit this fifth command. But upon reflection, it does seem to fit, right? So how could we reconceptualize the first tablet and say, it's not about relationships between me and God, it's relationships between me and someone else, such that all five fit. These relationships between me and God on the first four, and then these relationships between me and my parents and the last one, right? Relationships between me and who? I think the relationship between you and your parents is also directly to, connected to you and God. How so? It's connected to the way God created you. The Gemara says in Kedushin, I think it's Daf Alamid, Ahmed Ahmed Bet. It says the rabbis, the rabbis teach that there are three partners in creation, Hashem, God, the father and the mother. And when a person honors their parents, God says, I consider them as though I dwelled among them and they honored me. Um, and I think that's the most important thing um, to think about. And the obvious proof, I think Rabbi Riskin talks about this in his book, um, The Living Tree um, on Modern Orthodoxy. And he says how... Honouring God and honouring parents is the location of the commandment to honour parents within the Ten Commandments. It's grouped in the first half, together with the commandments pertaining Ben Adam le Makom. Um, and it's all to do with our relationship with God. Ah, oh, it has to do with the fact that God created me. In other words, why do I care about God so much? Because I view God as a creator. Well, why do I care about my parents so much? I view my parents as my creator too. So I don't have one creator, but two. I have my parents, my earthly creators, and I have God, my heavenly creators, and in partnership, they conspire to create me. So really, tablet number one isn't about relationships between people and God. It's re about relationships between people and their 
creators, right? Now, once you see that, that really starts to open up the Ten Commandments in an entirely new way. What it really says is, is that, you know, if you think about relationships between you and your creators, there is a certain quality that they have, whether uh, you're talking about your earthly creators or your godly creators, we intuit that our creators are above us. We put them on a pedestal. We have some sense that we are eternally in debt to them, that they that they're above us in some kind of way. So if you would almost draw a, a picture of a relationship between me and my creators, so I would be down there and you draw this vertical line connecting me and my creators. And that suggests that the second half of the Ten Commandments is really an entirely separate kind of relationship. And that relationship is what we might call horizontal relationships as opposed to vertical relationships, relationships between me and everybody else who's not my creator, i.e. relationship between me and my peers. So you have these vertical relationships between me and my creators, these horizontal relationships between me and my peers. And you can think of every single relationship I have in the world as one or the other. I'm either relating to a peer or I'm relating vertically to a creator. So that's kind of the first layer of structure in the Ten Commandments. But for me, the reason why the Ten Commandments is so powerful and is one of those things that I would take onto the desert island is I think not only is the Ten Commandments defining the two most important kinds of relationships we have, vertical relationships and horizontal relationships, it's also the five most important things we have to do in each of those relationships. And those are the five um, points in each tablet. And what I want to suggest is that we think of the Ten Commandments as ten, right? But it's really five. It's really five basic principles that are that are crucial for all of our relationships, our vertical relationships and our horizontal relationships. The reason why there's uh, ten is because each one of these principles reflects itself a little bit differently in a horizontal relationship than it does in a vertical relationship. So we have 10 expressions of five basic principles. But what the power of the document is, the document's saying, you know, there are five basic things you have to do in all your relationships, right? And these are the five. Now, how would you see what the five are? The Torah doesn't talk about the five principles. It talks about the 10 expressions of those principles. Each principle has two expressions. But you'd want to know what those five are, right? If that was if that was true, if there's really five basic things that you need to adhere to in every relationship that you'd have, right? You'd, you'd want to know what those five basic principles are. Those would be pretty important. That's why it's a desert island document, right? It's a desert island document because in a way it's telling you everything you need to know about all the relationships you have and boiling it down to five principles. It's like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, Highly Effective People, but there's only five, right? So what are the five? So um, all we don't have that much time together, so I'll, I'll give, give, we do want to get to our other, our other uh, pieces. Um, so I'll just give you the beginnings of this, and I'll challenge your listeners to see if they can distill the other principles. Um, and if they want some help to that, they can head on over to my website, alephbeta.org. Um, and we have uh, some videos on the Ten Commandments, which will kind of elaborate this. I think we have it in our, if I'm not mistaken, our, uh, you can probably search for Ten Commandments. We, we think we did it for Shavuos our first year. It's there somewhere. You'll find it. But you can try this yourself. And basically what you want to do is you want to take um, 
you want to sort of factor out the vertical or horizontal elements and say, you know, if we could draw a line from one tablet to the other, from the first command on tablet number one to first commandment on tablet number two, what would that line look like? If we could draw a line from second command on tablet number two to second command on tablet number one, what would that line look like, right? And that's what we do for each of those things. So for example, if you take um, I am the Lord your God, recognition of God as first commandment on tablet number one and do not murder in uh, as first commandment in tablet number two, you'd say, well, what's the commonality between do not murder and I'm the Lord your God? Or to put it better, what do not murder is in my horizontal relationships, recognition of God is in my vertical relationships, right? So what is this thing? So, you know, that's a really interesting question, right? What really is the commonality between do not murder and recognition of, of God? And in a way, it gets us, it challenges us to ask ourselves, you know, why would, what are we trying to do when we murder somebody, right? Like, and is there such thing as murdering God, right? There's, and what would it mean to want to murder God? You sort of can't do that. So if you think about murder, it strikes me as murder is getting rid of somebody, right? Why would I want to get rid of somebody? Well, basically, you know, if you lie in bed at night and you say to yourself, I think my life would be a little bit better without Bob in the world, right? So the next challenge you have is, am I going to get rid of Bob? Now, there's lots of reasons you might think that your life would be better without Bob in the world. Maybe you owe money to Bob. Maybe Bob owes money to you. Maybe Bob hates your wife. Maybe Bob loves your wife. There's lots of reasons why you might think you'd be better off without Bob in the world. But once you come to a decision that you think that your life would be better off without Bob in the world, the next question is, are you going to get rid of Bob? Um, now, if you just take that from the horizontal sphere and switch it over to the vertical sphere, and I said, is it at least theoretically possible that someone could lie in their bed at night and say, I think my life would be better off without God in the world, without my creator in the world? The answer is pretty clearly yes. Right, there are advantages to living life without your creator in the world. I'm not responsible to a higher power. I can do what I want. I can go to McDonald's and have Big Macs without any feeling of pangs of guilt. I have no constraints of morality. It's a pretty good life. You can imagine somebody thinking that their life might be better off without God in the world. So the next challenge they have is maybe they want to kill God. The only problem is you can't. Right. So if I can't kill God, what would be my next best solution? if I thought that life would be great without God in the world? So the answer is that if I can't objectively get rid of God, I can subjectively get rid of God. And the way I subjectively get rid of God is by ignoring him, right? If I say, um, well, God, you're dead to me, right? If I say you're dead to me, if I ignore you, if you say you don't matter to me, like I'm, I just have no relationship with you. So I'm getting, I'm doing the next best thing to murder. I'm getting rid of you for me. Right. So what the first commandment seems to be saying is when you lie in bed at night and you come to the conclusion that your life would be better off without X in the world, whether X is God or whether X is someone created in God's image, a human being. Right. Don't give in to the urge to get rid of them. Right. Either objectively by murdering them or subjectively by ignoring them instead deal with them right so the first great principle of relationships is don't try to get rid of the other of the inconvenient other deal with the inconvenient other 
right? And that, that's right the, the ground the ground rule for all relationships. As you go further and you look at how these uh, uh, how the ten commandments pair up, we begin to intuit other principles, other of the five. So, for example, don't commit idolatry, don't commit adultery. You think about the common denominator between number two on each side, idolatry and adultery, aside from the fact that they sound similar to one another, right, really are similar to one another. What I, if you think about uh, what, uh, what, what marriage is, marriage is the most intimate relationship we have on a horizontal level with our peers. If you think about worship of a creator, it's the most in intimate relationship we have on the vertical level with another being. And there's something about these intimate relationships that demand a certain kind of fealty and that betrayal can be toxic for, right? So don't mix in someone who doesn't belong into this very sacred relationship. The sacred relationship vertically is worship. The sacred relationship horizontally is marriage. Don't betray the relationship by trying to maintain the relationship while I cheat on the side with someone else who doesn't belong, right? We call that adultery. We call that idolatry. That's problematic, right? Avoid betrayal, right, is principle number two. Principle number three is on the horizontal level, it's do not steal. On the vertical level, it's don't take God's name in vain. The Hebrew is very interesting there. Don't take God's name in vain also includes the language of stealing, right? In Hebrew, almost don't pick up God's name and carry it off, right? Because God doesn't really have possessions. If I would say, what can you really steal of God? So you say, well, you know, God doesn't really have these physical possessions, right? So what does God have that you could steal? Um, and it's interesting when you think of stealing as the rabbis understood it on the second half of the Ten Commandments, they actually didn't interpret the Ten Commandments as barring all stealing. They referred it specifically to kidnapping, right? Which is uh, taking, a, uh, taking a person's body against their will. If you think about taking a person's body against their will and taking God's name sort of against his will, the common denominator of God's name and, and our body is, you know, if you think about why our bodies matter to us, it's because, you know, they're the way we express ourselves in the world. I have a sense of self, which is very hard to put a finger on, right? But my physical expression in this world of my sense of self is my body. If you try to maintain control over my body, without my permission, if you steal it, so you're taking the most essential expression of my sense of self in this world against my will and doing what you will with it. We call that stealing, kidnapping. It's the worst form of, uh, of stealing. Well, how does God's sense of self express this? God doesn't have a body. So the next best thing that God has is his name in the world. When you take that name against his will and you treat it, uh, you do what you will with it for your own desires, it's taking God's name in vain. It's a, it's a violation. We actually sort of use that word violation when we talk about stealing. Interestingly, even though our, um, our possessions are being harmed, not necessarily our sense of self, but possessions are an expression of myself um, and, uh, and, and I harm coming to me there. So these are three out of the five. And what you see this as building towards without even getting to the fourth and the fifth is that um, the, the Ten Commandments are actually 
suggesting, right, the commonality of these three that we've seen thus far, these three principles, which is uh, don't try to get rid of the inconvenient other, uh, don't betray a sacred relationship, um, don't uh, don't illegitimately take the property of one another. What these are really getting at in both vertical and horizontal relationships can really be summarized in a single word. Um, and these are different aspects of respect, not so much love, but respect, which is non-violation of boundaries. And what the Ten Commandments seems to be saying is, is kind of laying down this idea is not 10 random laws that seem to be interesting, right? But actually five basic principles that together um, give you a picture of what respect means. What does it mean to not violate someone? The very first, uh, the, the very first requirement in a relationship. What I would say is that, you know, in life, um, in, in our culture, we get uh, a lot of points for love. If you think about all the movies that are about love, right? The boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, right? I mean, that's every, you know, rom-com movie out there, any, any, right? They're all about that. And, and we celebrate love. There's not a lot of movies that celebrate respect, right? Respect is not really one of those virtues that gets uh, trumpeted so much in movies. Ironically, there is a movie that celebrates respect, which is also probably the most romantic movie of all, Casablanca, but it's a movie about unfulfilled love and respect getting in the way of that. Um, but I think what the Torah is saying is that even though love is one of our great desire, elusive desires as human beings that we strive for, to be in some sort of loving relationship, what the Ten Commandments lays out for us is the need for a predicate for that relationship, which is that whatever relationship you're going to build, whatever friendship, whatever loving relationship you can build with us, whether it's familial love, whether it's just being friends with someone, whether it's ultimately romantic love, the predicate for all of those is respect, is non-violation, that if you don't have that, love can't be built upon that. And the Ten Commandments is kind of giving you a foundation for every relationship which you can undertake. And it's not so much that it's telling you this is the be-all and end-all, of all your relationships, but it is the necessary foundation for every relationship which you'll have, right? Respect has to be the predicate, and upon that, everything else can be built. And to me, that's one of, that's for me, the reason why it's one of my top three uh, Desert Island pieces of Torah. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, so I'll quickly sketch out to you um, our uh, the the sort of remaining two pieces that would be interesting for me with it just giving you a little flavor of why it'd be interesting. And again, um, folks can check this out more at alafeta.org uh, if they'd like to, to explore it more deeply. One of the pieces of Tanakh, which is really meaningful to me, which I spent a lot of time over the years working on is the Joseph story. That's my favorite. The Joseph story is really, really fascinating in so many ways and is very close to my heart. Um, so I guess the question is, how big a piece of the Bible do you let me take onto the desert island, right? If it's all, um, you know, 13 chapters of the Joseph long, story. It's a long story. I, I grab that. It's a long story. 
But if you said, no, that's too long, you could just take a certain piece of the Joseph story. What piece would you take? Be really tough to decide. But one great candidate that, that I would take would be the story, the little story within a story of, Pharaoh, of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. Now, you might say Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream seems like a relatively trivial part of the story. Pharaoh has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. There are these, there are these cows. There are these beautiful cows and these ugly cows. And suddenly the ugly cows devour the beautiful cows and Pharaoh's alarmed. And he seeks um, some sort of understanding of what the dream means. He knows it's an important dream, but he can't quite figure out what it means. And suddenly this Hebrew slave is hauled out of a pit, a guy with a reputation for being able to interpret dreams. And suddenly he, among everyone, knows what the dream means. What's puzzling about the story is that Joseph says that God's going to help them interpret the dream. But when you actually read the story, there's no point in the story in which God tells Joseph what the dream means. right? It's not like Joseph stops in the palace, he has this vision, and God comes to him and says, here's what Pharaoh's dream means, go tell him this. He just goes and interprets the dream. And yet he says that God was helping him interpret the dream. So how did God help him interpret the dream? Right? Like, did God say anything? Did God not say anything? So... I think that what was going on there was something really very, very fascinating, which is that if you read the story of how Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream carefully, you'll find these hints in the dream to Joseph's own life. The stuff that happens in the dream that reminds Joseph of what happened to him. Um, I'll give you an example, just in the lead up to the dream. And the lead up to the dream says that the text says that Joseph was pulled out of the pit right, that Pharaoh pulled him out of the pit. Now, it's true that Joseph was in prison, right, and Pharaoh pulled him out of prison, but the words in Hebrew are not that he pulled him out of prison. Earlier, the prison is referred to as a beta soar. This time, when Pharaoh pulls him out of the prison, it says he pulled him out of the pit. But the problem was Joseph wasn't in a pit, right? Well, maybe he wasn't in a pit now, but he sure, certainly was in a pit 13 years ago. So it's almost as if the Torah is intentionally conflating the story that's taking place now with a story that took place 13 years ago. Almost as if Joseph is having this deja vu, deja vu moment that as he's being pulled out of prison, it reminds him about this moment 13 years ago that he's being pulled out of the pit. And as if that deja vu moment wasn't enough, the next thing that happens to Joseph after he gets a haircut is he gets a change of clothes. He gets these beautiful new clothes. Um, well, if you think about the pit, the last thing that happened to Joseph before he got thrown in the pit is his brother stripped him of these beautiful new clothes. So he got stripped of these beautiful new clothes and he was put in the pit. And then 13 years later, he's taken out of his pit and he's getting these beautiful clothes. And then the next thing that happens is that it says that Vayavuel Paro, that after he gets taken out of the pit and after he gets these beautiful clothes, Vayavuel Paro, he comes to Pharaoh. Well, if you begin to see this pattern, you start to notice that Everything that's starting to happen to Joseph now is a reverse of what happened to him 13 years ago, right? 13 years ago, he was thrown in the pit. Now he's being pulled out of the pit. 13 years ago, he was stripped of his clothes right before he was thrown out of the pit. Now he gets these beautiful new clothes right after he gets taken out of the pit, right? And similarly, right, Vayobo Alparo, the next thing that happens to him is that he goes to this man, to this like father figure, Pharaoh, who takes care of him. Well, the opposite of going to a father figure like man who takes care of him is 
being taken away from a father figure man that was taking care of him, which is exactly the same thing that happened 13 years ago. His father sends him to go check on his brothers. He leaves his father. He gets his 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 clothes stripped of him, and then he's thrown in a pit. Now he's taken out of a pit, and he gets these beautiful clothes, and he goes to father. All these events that are happening now are reversed both chronologically and in terms of the meaning of the events from events that happened 13 years ago. Well, these... Um, these sort of coincidences, this pattern of coincidences continue in the text. As Joseph is pulled out of the pit, Pharaoh starts talking to him about these dreams. He says, gee, I had these dreams. I don't know what they mean, right? Well, you know, 13 years ago, right before Pharaoh, Joseph was thrown in a pit, right before he lost his clothes, right before he left his father, he um, he had actually been talking to his father about his dreams. He too had had these dreams. He said, I had these dreams, you know, I wonder what these dreams mean. And now it's happening again, right? But the reverse is happening. Instead of Joseph saying to father, I had these dreams and then getting sort of rejected. Now you have Pharaoh, this father figure saying to Joseph, gee, I had these dreams. And, uh, you know, would you interpret them for me? And again, it's the reverse. It's even the reverse in the Hebrew language, right? In one case, it's it's halom chalamti. Right. And the other case, it's halamti halom, right? It's just the inverse of this. So it's this remarkable correspondence. And what happens is that as you go into Pharaoh's recounting of the dream, the very next events, you'll find that the pattern continues. And it's almost as if Joseph has been primed to, to see this pattern. In other words, it's that he has this sense of deja vu that everything that's happening to him now is this reverse of what happened to him 13 years ago. And then he starts listening to the dream. And in the dream, he begins to hear these echoes of his own life from 13 years ago. And it's the reverse of events that happened 13 years ago. And he's being called upon to interpret the dream. And suddenly he's able to put the pieces together and understand the meaning of the dream through the way the dream seems to correspond to his own life. The reason why this is a death, and again, I'm just giving you the very briefest of, of summaries here, but the reason why this is one of my desert island pieces of Torah is because what this suggests is something very fascinating to me, which is, you know, if I said to you, we do a lot of talking to God, we davened him, we pray to him, does God ever talk back, Right. So that's a tough question. Like, I don't know, God, I don't hear the voice of God. If you told me I did, I would, you know, call social services and you'd think I was crazy and you'd put me in an insane asylum. People hear voices of God, you know, these days we, we don't herald them as prophets. We say that they're they're kind of crazy. So does, does that mean God doesn't speak to us? Well, if God would speak to us today, what would it look like? Is there such thing as prophetic communication where you, God communicates with people. Is there such case? Is there such thing as non-prophetic communication? What in an age where there's no prophets, does God still speak to us? And what would it look like? It seems to me that the Joseph story begins to provide a model for that. Because what's fascinating is even though prophecy is ubiquitous in the book of Genesis, the one generation that doesn't have prophecy is Joseph and his brothers. Right? There's never a moment in the Joseph story where it says, and then God spoke to Joseph saying. And God spoke to Judah saying, these guys didn't have prophecy. So did God speak to them the way 
right? The way he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the way he spoke to Noah, the way he spoke to Adam, or was God silent in their lives? And I think what you see is that God was not silent. There were non-prophetic ways that God could speak to Joseph like this. God never says, Joseph, here's what the dream means, but God does say, here's what the dream means. How? The answer is the patterns in Joseph's life are the answer. Joseph needs to be observant. If he if he connects the dots, right, he has these little taps on the shoulder. If he pays attention, God's speaking to him through the events of his life, almost as if the events of Joseph's life are this secret little tablet that God has and Joseph has that no one else has access to. Joseph's own history, his family history. And if God can, can play with that, if God can create these resonances in Joseph's life for these events which happened to him earlier, there's a way to communicate with him that is intimate and direct that only Joseph can understand because it's his life and it's no one else's life. And if God can do that, God can actually speak to him and communicate to him things like the meaning of Pharaoh's dream and other things throughout the Joseph story as well. So to me, that's a meaningful piece of Torah as well. The notion that communication between human beings and God can be alive and well and can be um, can be two-way. We don't just talk to God, but God can talk to us too in ways that are exciting um, and fascinating. All I would tell you for my third for my third piece is it's the creation story, but the creation story has two parts to it, creation one and creation two. A lot of times people have a hard time seeing how creation meshes, creation one meshes with creation two. I think they mess, mesh in fascinating ways. And the reason why that's my sort of third uh, piece of Desert Island Torah is because I think, you know, we talked earlier about what's special about God is that he's your creator. In the creation story, the story of God's creativity, if you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and you read them carefully, you actually see two different kinds of creativity, God creating in two different ways. One kind of creation is what we call malacha, right, which is sort of, uh, might say, technological creativity, a kind of building kind of creativity. But there's another kind of creativity also, the second story of creation, where the centerpiece is the planting of a garden. And there's this different kind of creativity, which is an organic kind of creativity. And to create organically is a whole different thing than to create in, in a building kind of way. And I think it's fascinating that it's not just God who creates organically and through artifice, through malacha, but it's us too. We too have two ways of creating. We create organically. We have children, right? And we have uh, and we plant gardens. We do all that. But we also create through malacha, we build. And to understand the differences between those two different kinds of creativity and the similarities between them, we can get insights from the way that God creates and understand our own creative processes in ways that are revelatory too. So that's my third piece of Desert Island Torah. So that's my long answer to your short question. Uh, the last piece particularly very important. And that's why we partner with God. We recreate the world. Um, really, really important um, messages. And thank you so much for sharing three really, really important and inspiring pieces of Torah. My pleasure. And uh, good luck to, to your readers and their quest to find their own desert island pieces of Torah that uh, inspire them enough to be able to uh, be continually nourished under the palm trees. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisra. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.